you know, we're doing Hemingway's, right? Big two-hearted river. There we go. It's a fishing story. And I tell him some cool things about Hemingway. I tell him about World War One and emotional trauma and healing through fishing. And I can see sometimes a little, little, little flicker there. The light's going on. And that's just my job. And I really, I try to reach them, but it's work. Sometimes it's work. And you do feel exhausted after the class. Not in a bad way. It's like after a good workout, like a good run. That was Henry Hughes describing how he connects to his college students through fly fishing. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Did you know that you can read the entire transcript for this episode? Another service we offer, if you click the link uh, in the show notes at the top there and head over to uh, to the website, uh, or you can just head over to wetflyswing.com slash 231. And uh, if you want, it's a pretty cool way to search, and if you missed anything along the way, it's got the whole transcript right there. Henry Hughes, deputy editor of the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, shares some of the great books uh, that he loves on fly fishing. We hear about his connection to Nick Lyons and Thomas McGuane and uh, and some of the upcoming pieces he has coming up in Gray's Journal and some other uh, journals around uh, the country. If you need some new material of the literary variety, this is the show for you. So without further ado, here is Henry Hughes. How's it going, Henry? Good morning. It's going great, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for putting this one together. Another another early one. I like to get started early before uh, a lot of times before my girls get up because they're <laughs> once they get up that they're fired up. So I appreciate you getting started early here. Um, oh, we're we're fishermen. We got to get up early. Yeah, that's right. Is is that uh, is that your style? Are you are you good? Are you more get up early or rest a little bit? Oh, I'm definitely a morning person. Absolutely, yeah. whether it's fishing or writing, thinking. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, awesome. Do you do your um, that's a good question on the right. I think of, um, I've been putting together a presentation actually for the, uh, the art flick, uh, trout unlimited chapter. It's just kind of a, a general thing. Uh, the, the person running that reached out to me cause they listen, he listens to the show. Great. And I've been going back through my back catalog, trying to put together some of my best episodes and, and the, the John Gearock episode keeps flashing back to me because I remember when I did it, it was kind of like, Whoa, okay. I got to make sure not to screw this one up. <laughs> um, but he came through with some really great stuff. And one of them was, he was talking about my, um, the, 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 my guests and how that's my currency, right? Like you right now, if I don't bring on good guests to the show and do a good job, that's like, that's all, that's kind of all I have. So, uh, you know, when you hear that, what, what do you think about as far as, you know, of what you do and maybe we can dig into what you do a little bit, but does, <laughs> does that resonate with you? I mean, how do you, what, what's your currency? It does. My students, I guess, uh, you know, that's, I, I am employed as a professor. And so my first, um, you know, line of intensity is that I do a good job as a teacher. And so I guess that's my currency, but, uh, I, I love what, I love what he said. I mean, you're very humble. You, your show is wonderful. And, you know, connecting with people is one of the most yeah. important things about, I think an angling world. Everyone loves to fish alone, mostly. Right. It's very solitary, right? Very meditative sometimes enterprise. We hate when there are other anglers, uh, you know, getting in close to us. But fishing increases our sense of the world through conversations like this one, Dave, and through writing. And I love teaching. And I talk to my students about fishing. I actually teach a course 
you know, about the literature of angling and all this networking and communication and books. And so it's interesting kind of paradox to the angling world, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I think you're totally right. Yeah. You start off. Well, I mean, I think sometimes people have friends or family they go fishing with, but, but you're right. When you get on the water, the solitary, the meditative piece is, is what I think a lot of people love getting away from the city and the cell phones and social media. Exactly. Um, well, this is good. I mean, this is really interesting. I mean, I think I've interviewed a few people. We talked about a little bit of Nick Lyons, who was, you know, another one of those interviews where I was a little, you know, a little scared getting into, but I think that's a, a good thing. And uh, it turned out great. And uh, you have a similar history. I mean, talk about that because you know, Nick, how, how, how similar is what you do in your background or your history? You know, I know you're younger, obviously, but to, to what Nick has done. Well, Nick is, you know, a, a king. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's had a brilliant, illustrious career uh, in publishing, writing, uh, you know, fishing. Um, it's interesting. I, I corresponded with Nick for many years. We met for the first time uh, a couple of years ago at his apartment in New York. We had the most extraordinary conversation. And I'm sure you found this, too. He's such a gentle Mm-hmm. Uh, kind, you know, um, unpretentious man. So immediately invites conversation. And we do have a, a lot in common. Um, you know, Nick was also a professor of English and um, decided that was going to be his passion. I love that that idea that you have to find out what your fire is, right? Like his new um, memoir, Fire in the Straw. You have to know what really you love in life. And, and early on, I, I realized I loved language. I loved... Uh, reading and writing and talking. And they're probably more lucrative, uh, you know, enterprises to go into, you know, my family would say, Oh, be a lawyer. You know, that's what <laughs> English majors do. You'll make a lot of money. All right. I didn't want to be a lawyer. Just like Nick didn't want to be a businessman. No. Nope. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I always followed that route. Um, and then fishing ran parallel to everything I did from a very young age. I loved to fish. I grew up on Long Island, New York, uh, like Nick, I'm an East coaster. And uh, it was a very fishy town, a little town on the North Shore of Long Island called Port Jefferson. And my father did not like to fish. <laughs> he had no interest, but he was a good dad, you know, so he would take me and there was a friend who knew something about fishing. And we started out, of course, just like Nick, uh, bait fishing, you know, in the harbor, catching flounder and, you know, and porgies and, and things like that. And then eventually developing into more of a sport angler. And uh, fly fishing, you know, for the first time, really for bluefish, which are uh, wonderful fish to uh, encourage <laughs> you as a fly angler because they'll they'll take anything and they fight, you know, wonderfully. And so that was very exciting for me as a young person catching a bluefish uh, in Long Island Sound. Yeah, no, that's cool. I'm glad you started there. Brought us back to your start because I think. I mean, since then, and you've done some traveling around the world, right? I mean, have you, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I know your, your book that you're, uh, I guess, re-releasing or uh, is coming out again. Give, talk about that book first and then talk about your world travels. Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, Backseat with Fish is a memoir that I wrote in 2016. It's coming out uh, this summer in paperback. Uh, Nick Lyons uh, you know, helped um, kind of acquire that book for Skyhorse Publishing. And it does describe my life. Um, we all have interesting lives, I think, right? <laughs> um, it's just, you know, how do you write it? How do you talk about it? And so I, I love Long Island where I grew up, but I was eager to, to uh, move. And so I went to school in the Midwest. I, I lived in South Dakota and Indiana mm-hmm. and fished in those rivers and ponds and lakes. And then I um, went to Japan. I did a master's uh, in English at Purdue in Indiana and I went to Japan for three years, fished ex- 
extensively. Japanese you know, love to fish, obviously, mm-hmm. great angling culture, immersed in the, the, the magic of the Pacific. And then I lived in China for two years. Uh, I was teaching English, also fishing. I mean, I, wow. we, I, in Backseat with Fish, I described kind of sneaking in, bribing some guards, my girlfriend and I, and one of these, imagine one of these like big palatial <laughs> Chinese parks, you know, with, uh, with ornamental koi and all these big carp. And we're, you know, casting dry flies and catching these giant carp and, you know, fighting wow. them around like pagodas and stuff. It was crazy fun. <laughs> But, but um, I, I do. I love to travel. Always, always take my fishing gear. And uh, now I'm back in Oregon. I eventually yeah. uh, took a job here um, in Western Oregon, and uh, of course, great fishing of the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. That's right. How did you How did you land on Western? Because I, I, um, you know, I know obviously I'm in Oregon as well, and Western. I didn't realize. I guess it is a, a big. Uh, te- I always thought of it as a teacher school, right? A place where teachers go and learn to become teachers. But yeah, how did you land on Western? Yeah, it's a great teaching school. My wife is in the College of Education, um, and it has a great reputation for that. Well, you know, when you finish, I did a PhD in American literature. I went back to school after China. And when you have a degree that's kind of specialized as an academic, you know, you can't just go anywhere. You have to go on a job market and certain jobs open. And a job opened here at uh, Western Oregon. It's a, it's a, you know, modest state school, about 5,000 mm-hmm. students. And um, I was delighted. I said, yeah, I mean, Oregon, it's got great fishing. What, what, you know, I don't even, I, I didn't even know what the salary was. I said, okay, I'm coming, you know. <laughs> nice. Well, where'd you come from uh, before, just before that, before this job? Yeah, I just finished. I went back to Purdue in Indiana to finish my PhD. Um, and of course, Long Island was always home. So I'd gone home that summer. And then, I mean, I was a poor grad student. I had a beat up 20 year old Buick that my father helped me patch back together. And I, I drove that crazy rig from New York to Oregon, uh, again, fishing along the way, believe it or not, you know, getting a one day license to fish in Montana and come down through Washington. And so uh, it was always part of my journey. And I do describe that in backseat with fish. Oh, good. I'll put a link in the show notes to that um, and anything else we talk about here today. So, yeah, I was kind of curious, you know, just thinking about writers. We're going to maybe focus a little bit on, um, you know, not only yourself, but other writers. And I was just looking at, you know, when you think of the best fly fishing writers, you know, there's things you could Google up and see what pops up. But, you know, some of the names, and I've had some of them on the show. I mentioned Gearock, uh, Tom Rosenbauer, uh, you know, Norman McLean, McGoin. I mean, there's all these, right. Who, when you think of some of the, the great fly fishing writers out there, is there a list that comes like a, a top 10 list or something in your mind or what, what comes to your mind there? Yeah, well, certainly those writers are on my list. Um, you know, there are different kinds of writers and you mentioned Tom McGuane. I know Nick Lyons is a fan and, and Nick talked about Tom McGuane and Ted Leeson. And those are two very special writers in my in my life because they they look at the other the other dimensions of fishing it's it sure there's adventure and there's natural history and there's great knowledge of of fly fishing uh technical knowledge but there's also a kind of um artistic uh cultural you know sensibility that takes it to another level and i really i really like that like mcguane can do that in an essay it's it's profound um, without being kind of overly self-conscious, you know, fly fishing can go there, Dave. Uh, some of the writing can go really precious, really yeah. quick. 
You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Like, oh, it's the perfect stream, the perfect morning, the perfect hatch. Right. I hold this jeweled trout. I mean, we we can almost can you know create this list of cliches. Uh, yeah. And and I'm not saying that that's not true to experiences. I've also right, and you have. We've been very mm -hmm. high out there and and thought, oh my God, it's magical, and that's all very real. But then, how in writing do you do you render that in a kind of fresh, original way? You know, to to make it vivid. Yeah. And not just like the same old kind of trout poem. Um, and so people exactly. like McGuane can do that. You know, there's new writers. I want to mention uh, Noah yeah. Davis. Uh, Noah Davis is a is a young emerging writer. Uh, I've I've been seeing his work in all the good magazines, the Drake and Flyfish Journal and Angler's Journal. And so he just did an MFA at uh, Indiana University, and he's just writing really well. And there's new issues to deal with, you know, issues about conservation and global mm -hmm. warming and even issues like gender. You know, I like to see more women fishing. Um, you know, I read some great poems by Nora Esty uh, and, you know, just a woman who's writing about fly fishing. You know, you don't see as many uh, women writing. There are some great ones, of course. Annie Prue is one of my favorite writers, uh, famous for Brokeback Mountain, but you know, oh, yeah. she, she's a fly, she knows fly fishing and she's written some brilliant stories, fly fishing <laughs> stories. Some of them even kind of gothic and creepy, uh, right. where trout is one that comes to mind. So there, there's a lot of good literature out there. Well, on you mentioned uh, poems, and I know um, you are also the deputy uh, editor of uh, Fly Fishing Time Journal, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, and so, and I've talked to Craig. Craig's been on here as well, um, and that's always a lot of fun. I'm just curious on the poetry because you've you've written, and that's been a big topic for you. Is that something? I mean, what has been your focus with FTJ over the years? I'm not sure. As deputy editor, what have you been in charge of? Yeah, it, you're right. It's connected to poetry. Um, you know, Frank Amato and Craig Schumann were wonderful in kind of bringing me aboard and letting me do a kind of a, a literary component to the magazine. And I said to them, I said, well, Gray's Sporting Journal always runs a poem. I've always admired Gray's. What a beautiful magazine. And so, you know, why don't we run some poems? And the danger is there's a lot of, you know, crappy poetry out there, you know. I mean, you know, cowboy poetry, and that has its place. But I'm like, no, I'd like a literary poem, you know, accessible for our readership, you know. Um, it's not the New Yorker, but just good poems about fly fishing. And so... Uh, they let me select two poems for every issue and work quarterly. So I mentioned Noah Davis. He's had poems in there. Uh, Nora Esty. Um, we've had, you know, uh, Cameron Scott with some terrific poets. Uh, and so I enjoy selecting poems for the magazine. And I, I like to write poetry as well uh, about fly fishing, all kinds of fishing. And same kind of considerations play in. You don't want to just go to the cliche. You don't you want to avoid the old hackneyed ways of describing a magical moment. You kind of have yeah. to find fresh language. I really believe poetry, you know, needs to do that constantly, find the right words mm -hmm. to say, you know, what, what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. But yeah, it's good yeah. to see uh, uh, fishing poetry out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's, I mean, I think that is something, you know, I'm talking to you, obviously you're a PhD educated and you're in the space and stuff, but for somebody who maybe is new to it and they don't know a lot about poetry, I mean, you know, where where would somebody get started if they're kind of listening now? They're thinking, well, this might be interesting to find some new some new work. I mean, I guess FTJ, you have some stuff there, but where where would you send somebody to learn more about, you know, where fly fishing poetry is and a little bit about it? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a great question. And um, there are some anthologies. In fact, I put one together for Kanaf Random House called um, The Art of Angling, Poems About Fishing. Hmm. That's available uh, in any bookstore, Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I collected, uh, you know, lots of poems uh, from all kinds of fishing, but lots of fly fishing poems from, you know, ancient China <clears throat> to um, from ancient China to the present. And so looking at anthologies that have collected poetry about fishing is, is a good place to start. Um, Gray's publishes a poem in every issue, hunting or fishing. Mm -hmm. A lot of fly fishing poems. You can look at that magazine. Angler's Journal is a magazine I really admire. It covers all kinds of fishing, beautifully produced, uh, gorgeous photography. Again, not how-to stuff. That's really fading away from a lot of magazine uh, publishing. It's more about the culture, the art of fishing, and they they run poems as well. I've had some poems in there, but uh, yeah, that's, yeah, because people don't really know what poetry is. They think it's just rhyming verse, and again, that's certainly a kind of poetry, and that's appropriate in for certain occasions. But I, I kind of you know strive toward a more literary poem that that's just kind of trying to say something a little bit deeper about the experience. And it's just a matter of, yeah, reading other poems and, and pick up uh, FTJ and look at some of the poems we've published. Uh, send me an email and I'll, I'll point you to some to some uh, good fishing poetry. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we had um, you mentioned Angler's Journal. I had um, Gary Reich uh, on and uh, we, we did a Lefty Cray episode where we talked about uh, Lefty. And so I dug into a little bit of Angler or um yeah, of, of that journal. It seems like, you know, with the magazine, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this on the air, but, you know, how magazines are changing, obviously. I remember when I talked to Craig a while back about it because I know FTJ was always a lot of uh, tips and tricks and stuff right. like that, you know, <clears throat> which is, you know, and this podcast is too as well. I mean, there's a lot of tips and tricks we dig into here today. We might not touch on a lot of that because I like to keep it open. But, you know, obviously the stories, you know, stories are kind of the king in part that I always pr try to bring out. But when you're looking at FTJ, how do you find, you know, say you have somebody you want to bring on or, you know, how do you find people to write? I mean, obviously you have a lot of authors out there. How, how do you know, or are you guys just getting submissions and you have too many to, to read through? We get a lot of submissions and Craig handles the technical articles, um, the kind of travel pieces or the, the location pieces. And I, I um, acquire the poems, often the tail out, which is our kind of thoughtful, you know, think piece at the end of the magazine, the tail out. And then, you know, sometimes just essays about a kind of fishery or perhaps the history of a fly. I enjoy the history of fly fishing. Um, even a short story. We do publish short stories. We have a contest. Paul Shaleri, one of the towering figures in the history of fly fishing, a great, a great historian. He's got a short story in our in our current issue. But so I, I do, I, I go for that stuff too. I do um, solicit m manuscripts from, from writers that I know. I'll ask them if they have something. We do get submissions. And, you know, you're, it's a really interesting question because how much technical, how to, um, you know, step-by-step -step fly tying do you offer in a magazine? You know, FTJ is a little bit of a more traditional magazine in that way. We still do that and we still have a number of perhaps even older subscribers and readers that that want that. And you know very well, Dave, the new generation, it's YouTube, you know, it's looking up something on the web. That's how you learn how to tie a new fly. There's endless videos. Um, and so kind of straddling those two technologies or those two traditions is 
is key. Now, again, FTJ, we're trying to do that to be faithful to our, our, our readership. But the new magazine, you know, is, as you know, you know, Fly Fish Journal, a beautiful magazine like that, or Drake, they're all about the culture mostly and the place and the conservation. And so you don't see a lot of technical stuff. It's mentioned, you know, it's discussed, but it's not the focus of the article. That's right. No, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting time to be because especially as, you know, and myself as a podcaster, right, this is a kind of a fairly new medium, you know, that's kind of come in and, uh, you know, it's, it's been skyrocketing recently because I think people it's becoming more mainstream and, uh, but I, I, I try to balance it. Like I said, I try to do a little bit of both where I can and, and kind of hear the background of, of my guests. But yeah. so I guess, yeah, I mean, sticking on that with you, you know, again, I, I'm kind of interested in, in the, the teaching a little bit, you know, I mean, you're a, so when you, as a, maybe talk about what you do at Western and sure. talk about how that is connected to the fly fishing and the other writing you do. Yeah, so I teach a variety of courses, but I teach uh, surveys and literature. So if you want to, you know, American literature, I, I do all the like the greatest hits. And then I'll do maybe a course on the short story or I do special seminars, literature of the sea. And we might do Moby Dick and a number of contemporary pieces about, you know, um, maritime adventure. Uh, I'll do a special course on fly fishing. Uh, you know, I'll just pick a bunch of works, famous works. You've mentioned some of them. We might spend, uh, you know, a couple of weeks on Norman McLean's The River Runs Through It and do a detailed analysis of that. There's plenty of literature in the fly fishing world to support a course. Now, you can't run that course all the time, uh, but you can run it off and on. And so I teach writing, too. I actually teach the craft of writing, poetry, fiction, essay. And, you know, it's almost like a little bit of they tease me a little bit, my colleagues and students. Well, if he can get fishing in there somehow, he will, you know, and so they know yeah. me like, <laughs> Well, there's a lot of fishing stories in this uh, course packet or, you know, and uh, and students even write about fishing probably because they know I love it. And so I have to <laughs> I have to keep it under control. But I am fortunate, like like Nick Lyons and others, where my career as a teacher and a writer nicely dovetailed with my love of fishing. Um, I, I you know, and I don't know how many sports that would work for. You know, there's just so much literature and culture connected to fly fishing it it has an oh, air is. of respectability <laughs> you know i don't know if i could pull off if it were baseball maybe maybe baseball but i don't bowling i don't know it'd be tough with bowling right. um, no yeah probably not um, <laughs> so i mean we all do that we try to parlay our passions um and i think what you're doing like with the podcast and your own fishing and and guiding the family you got to try to make everything kind of work together you can't have opposing forces in your life. I find that slows me down. So, um, so yeah, I just teach courses and sometimes they have nothing to do with fishing, <laughs> but uh, believe it or not. Yeah. I can manage something about certainly about nature. I've taught a course on rivers, for example, and huh. just, just to pick a bunch of great works of literature about rivers, you know, whether it's Mark Twain's life on the Mississippi or Herman Hesse's Sid Arthur, or, you know, poems about fishing. You know, I mean, you can get all kinds of stuff in there. That's fun. That's I think the students really appreciate the variety of that, too. When you talked about, go back to that fly fishing um, segment you did, or the class, I mean, who, mm -hmm. were, who were your students on average? What was that person in the audience? What were they going to become? Yeah, they're about, let's say we had about 15 students, um, about 10 were women, um, most English majors or a lot of our students interested in humanities are female. 
And so that's kind of challenging sometimes because they may not have as much experience in fishing. But um, so I, I kind of have to talk more maybe generally about fishing. But they are a variety of majors. And sometimes it's a business major who just had an interest in fishing, wanted to take an elective, wanted to take one course in writing or literature. But um, a lot of English majors. And, um, you know, it's funny because sometimes someone will just come and say, you know, I, I fished once when I was a kid with my dad and I really liked it. And I haven't fished in I haven't fished in 10 years. And I just thought, you know, this would be a cool class. And it's really interesting. I hear those stories a lot from people that they've fished once or twice and had a powerful experience, but haven't done it in a long time. And there's a kind of nostalgia connected to that, a kind of reclaiming youth and innocence and, and beauty. And a lot of the times the literature really spoke to those people. And I, in fact, I heard back from several that they went fishing again. So I'm delighted, you know, that they, they kind of found fishing. Uh, they were re-excited by fishing uh, through the literature and are now, you know, contacting an uncle or a friend and going, going back to that lake that they haven't been to in so long. Exactly. Kind of, yeah, they're planting the seed. I remember, you know, the seed was planted as a kid. And then you're kind of there coming up when they're still young, you know, adults, and you're keeping that going. I mean, do you feel like you've had a, a good contribution in, in getting people into, uh, you know, fly fishing over the years? Yes. Yes, I do. And um, it's not hard to do. And, and when, if the weather is good, we've actually taken the class out to the Willamette River, which is just down the road in Independence. And I'd take out some fly rods and, you know, you can't do any harm. There's a, it's a nice gravel beach. A <laughs> back cast is pretty easy and give a quick lesson and let them cast too. And I remember this one young woman, she was just so enthralled and she really picked it up quickly. Um, she, she started casting beautifully and she just said to me, she goes, this feels so good. And you know, that feeling, right? When it's just, yeah. when, you know, you're, you're, you're loading line nicely and it's just lying at a good cast. And I was like, yeah, it does feel good. And yeah. so that was kind of a magical moment. I'm sure, you know, as a guide, you experience that all the time. Um, but as a you know teacher in the classroom, I don't. And so that was pretty exciting too. Well, I wanted to kind of go back again, you know, to that books we mentioned. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a list of books again for somebody. And are you more, when you think about the stuff you read, I mean, obviously I'm sure you've read kind of everything, but do you enjoy more uh, kind of some of the books or more magazines or more poetry? What's your focus right now? Yeah, good question. Well, I do read the magazines uh, because I like to contribute to them. And so, again, I, you know, not to overly plug Angler's Journal, but I like what they're doing. You know, like I said, you had Gary Reich on and Bill Sisson is their chief editor. Really wonderful man. But the the depth of culture, I like reading about interesting people like Lefty Cray, right? What a legend. Um, and so uh, biographies or um, a kind of, you know, um, detailed kind of discussion of a place and the characters involved. I love ca crazy characters in the fishing world. Uh, I contributed a piece recently to Angler's Journal about a, a woman who fillets, the, the fillet queen. Oh, oh yeah. No. Yeah. That. <laughs> you know, she's great. I mean, and so just like those personalities. So I do, I like, I like reading the magazines. Um, and again, in terms of writers, boy, you know, there's so many, and there are also books that, you know, maybe have been forgotten. Um, I mentioned women again, Margot Page's wonderful book, Little Rivers, you know, kind of a, uh, a pun on little women. That's a great book about fly fishing that's kind of been neglected. You know, there's an anthology that Holly Morris did a few years ago. 
I think it's called a different angle. And it's, it's women who fly fit women, you know, writing about fly fishing. And I think that was really a cool book. I know there's an Annie Prue story in there. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple other writers that are coming up or Stephen Sautner is a terrific writer. Fish on fish off, uh, came out a few years ago. Um, and I really like his work. You'll see him in, in a lot of the magazines, mostly fly fishing, other kinds of fishing too. Uh, Matt Miller, another terrific writer, uh, works for the Nature Conservancy, I believe, and is writing about fly fishing. I, the British scene is interesting. My wife is British, and so we go to England and Wales almost every year. Charles Rangeley Wilson, uh, I mentioned uh, him to you, Dave. He's a terrific uh, writer. He, I just saw his, he had a couple articles in The Guardian, you know, Britain's leading paper, like the New York Times in a way. But he's a serious fly fisherman, and I like his work a lot. And he does great urban angling scenes, you know, fishing under bridges in London, you know, trying to seek out the trout, you know, that are just hanging on there in some of the more polluted uh, urban areas, but also getting out into the beautiful countryside, of course, the famous chalk streams of England. So there's just there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of good writers yeah. out there. Yeah, there is. I, no, this is great. I'm glad you keep uh, you're going on this because I think it'd be cool to have a list of just, you know, probably uh, you know a number of different you know writers and authors um, that people can kind of dig into to get more information. So this is cool. And we mentioned, uh, you know, we mentioned Nick. You know, again, I guess I, I keep going back to him a little because you guys do have a similar career. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I mean, he was, I guess, it was, his story is interesting, right? The whole and his kind of goes back to England as well, but you know, how he became the editor of, you know, Lions Press, right. which was big. And, you know, but again, going back to Nick, I mean, when you compare yourself to Nick, I mean, that's a hard thing to do, I know. Um, but, you know, I mean, do you see, I mean, other than what you've talked about, are there other things that kind of pop out with Nick? I mean, or, you know, I'm kind of getting to that point, like what makes Nick and maybe even some of these other editors and writers that at the top? You know what I mean? Right. Is it just literally a, they work harder than everybody else or just like <laughs> McGuane and, and gear rock and these other guys, do they have something special? What is the secret to success? Yeah. Ah. What, what is their secret? Cause I haven't asked, I don't think, I don't think gear rock told me exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's a hard question. Well, I think hard work is, is huge. I mean, when Nick tells you the things that he did to keep his family afloat and taking night jobs and he was a mm -hmm. ghostwriter and you know, he was yeah. a professor and an editor and it's, oh my tiring. goodness, he yeah. worked so hard. Are you working that, are you working that hard? I mean, is that like when you, <laughs> no, no. And I, you know, that's it. I love your question. No, I'm not working that hard. Um, I have moments when I think I want to, and I have, I do get into zones where I get a lot done. But you're not doing four hours. You're not doing four hours of sleep a night. No, I like to play too. I really like to play. Um, I like to, you know, take a day off and have a few drinks. I like to goof around in the garden with my wife. We do a little gardening. That's one of our, I like to um, go fishing. Now fishing cuts into work time. There, There's the big one. I love to fish and fish once a week, sometimes twice a week. And that's typically a morning, but not always. Now I can get out in the, in the evening, but my mornings are my work time. So when I'm, when I'm really in the zone, let's say I want, really want to write something. I've got an essay I want to write, or, or I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning up a batch of poems. I'm editing something, even working for the magazine. I got some work I need to read. 
what I need to do is I need to exercise and feel good. I need to go to bed at a decent hour. Uh, honestly, don't drink too much. Behave myself. Get up early. Get to the desk feeling fresh and crisp and work till about, you know, 11 o'clock. What's early? What time do you get up? Get to the that? desk at 6 o'clock, 6 a.m. Yeah. All right. Even earlier, 5.30. And feeling good. Drinking my cup of tea. And getting to work, no distractions. I don't even look at my email when I first get to the desk because I don't want, even if it's good news, I don't want to be distracted. I want to focus on my work and just get something done, work three or four hours. Then you take a break, have your lunch, uh, maybe go for a walk. And then other things, I got to teach, I got to deal with students, Zooming, then then the business of the day. But if I can keep the morning to myself, and Tom McGuane and I have talked about this. He says the same thing. He says, you know, don't let the world get in. Work on your your writing. In fact, um, you know, McGuane is amazing. He's 81. I just got an email from him yesterday. He caught his largest tarpon uh, last few months, 160 pounds. Jeez. Down, I think he was down in the Bahamas sure. with uh, Schwinnard hanging sure. out down there. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, dude, man, that's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, so, and he's very disciplined, but yeah, mornings, keep, keep a little bit of the morning to yourself, uh, before the world gets it on you. I mean, sometimes that's impossible, but that's my little kernel of wisdom. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's right. I think you find your time where you, where you get your work done and you get that done first. Um, you know, with your fishing, so, so take us there for a second. So, so now you've, you're tucking in, you're getting one of your projects done, but how do you, how do you work fishing into, into the mix? You just say, save a day. Uh, right. There. I save a yeah. day and I feel much better. My conscience feels, <laughs> feels cleaner when I've gotten a lot of work done. Um, I, I hate having a little bit of guilt hanging over me. Like I got a big thing I got to finish. So it's nice when I work maybe one day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I'm going to take Thursday morning and go fishing. And, um, you know, just same thing. They'll get up very early. I love to fish in the morning. And, and you know, but it takes energy, you know, and you got to trailer a boat perhaps and get gear ready. And then there's a the cleanup after. I also, you know, we harvest fish. We, we catch uh, stocked rainbows from some of these lakes in the Cascades or Detroit Lake. And so then I'm cleaning fish and kokanee. We've been catching kokanee lately. So I got to clean some fish. And, <laughs> and so it, it's a day, you know, it can be a day. Um, and, but to me, it's worth it. So I balance the fishing and work and then you know, teaching and family as well. Uh, I try to balance it, but I'm not as driven as some of these people like you're describing. Nick Lyons was driven and it hasn't hurt him. Sometimes it hurts people and it can damage. I think you're, you know, your, your stress levels get too high. People have heart attacks. So they just become kind of bitter. And that's not at all the case with Nick. So there are people who can just do it. And I do admire them too. And I aspire to that. Maybe, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm only 55. So maybe I can still, I can get it together, you know, yet and have my best years ahead. I really believe that sometimes. That's right. Yeah, no, I think I agree. I think uh, you're just you're right in your prime. You know, I mean, 55 seems like that's the, the, you know, I don't know. I think they say mid 40s is when people or at least males are at their top of their, um, uh, you know, kind of making money, right, part of their mm-hmm. their life. But but 50s seems like you only get better, especially with the right. When you're out fishing, so you're on the, I mean, are you, because that's kind of work too, a little bit, right? Because you're writing about fishing. I mean, do you find yourself kind of thinking about work or an article that's connected to your fishing when you're out there? Yeah, I get ideas. Um, 
And sometimes I take notes, like even just on my phone or something, make a little audio note, but mostly I just do it. And then when I come home, I keep a fishing log. I, I, so I write a very detailed account of every single fishing trip. And that helps me draw on um, information later. And then when I do like a special trip, like uh, we typically hike friends and I in the summer in Montana and Idaho, and we've done like a big trip through the Bitterroots wilderness hike. Then I take some really serious notes at night in the tent. And when I come home from that trip, I really, I try to write something pretty quickly. I, I feel if I don't, I sometimes lose it. But if I can, you know, maybe you come back from a really special trip and I really, while the iron is hot, I try to get something down and I find it's more effective in, in actually getting a publishable essay together if I do that. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I do, I guess you're right. It is kind of like work a bit, but a good, good, <laughs> best work, yeah. you know? good good work yeah for sure what's your uh, so your fishing log do you have a journal that you kind of use out in the field or is this more get back and write into a computer i get back and, and write i do write by hand uh and then make digital copies so that they're not ever lost but i do still write by hand probably a generational thing do you write by hand into like what's the you know i'm trying to like is it a notebook is it an actual leather bound journal uh, I've tried leather bound, <laughs> a little pretentious, right? The moleskin. No, it's it's a it's a little bound um, kind of tablet, small tablet, maybe uh, five by seven. And it's you know I've tried different kinds of journals. My wife bought me a beautiful fishing journal, but it has all these little categories like temperature and and I feel very restricted. Like, well, maybe right. I don't want to talk about temperature right now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I That's find that just the blank page allows me to creatively. Right now, I don't, I'm not a scientist, so I don't, you know, you can look up what the temperature was, I guess, maybe water temperature. Sometimes I'll record, but it's not a bunch of facts. I mean, it can be, but it's more uh, what I saw, how I felt, um, certainly what we caught or didn't catch, but it's not so much for my scientific, you know, research, like the old fishing logs, people like, you know, would study exactly the, what was hatching and the exact temperature. Um, I'm more interested in kind of impressions of, of what happened. And then the dates are very useful. You know, the salmon season, I'm like, okay, here we are. It's October 15th. Last year we caught a nice Chinook. We better get out there. Right. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, dates are good. Um, okay. And and what about, you know, get, you know, staying on, I guess, back to like editors. We talked about a few, uh, Nick. I mean, are there... Like when you think of editors, who are you know? Obviously, you work with Craig. I mean, who are some of the who are some of the good, some of the great editors out there that come to your mind? Yeah, um, Nick was one of the best in terms of acquiring books, um, and um, you know, I think that magazine editors—that's a hard job. So Bill Sisson, I'm going to give him a shout for Anglers Journal, and I know he works with Gary. That is a really terrific editor. And I always like working with him. Um, you know who's one of my favorite editors of all time? James Babb, the former editor of Grays. And Jim Babb is also a name worth mentioning. That man can write. So he he has uh, he had a book out a few years ago, um, and fly fishing, uh, all the other kinds of fishing, but a brilliant writer. And he selected work for Grays for years. And also helped people, you know, rewrite. You know, sometimes editing is rewriting, and that that's not bad. Um, you know, there are different. Some people are, are brilliant anglers and have a lot to say, but maybe don't aren't experienced as writers. And so I'll help some people out. You know, I'll just do a 
a revision and track changes and send it back to them. And they're usually like, wow, thanks, you know, tighten a few things up. Um, I know people do it to my writing, uh, especially like Craig. <laughs> Craig Schumann is a brilliant fly angler. And I'll write a short story with some fly fishing in it. And he'll be like, you know, Henry, I don't think that's really what would happen here. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, yeah. no, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be using that tippet on this. And so he, he cleans me up, you know, because he just has that, that higher level of knowledge, of technical knowledge. And I help him sometimes just with, um, you know, phrasing a metaphor or something. So we're, we're, we have a great complementary relationship, Craig Schumann and I. And that's the fun thing, um, working with a good writer a fellow writer or an editor, you may have different skill sets or different areas of expertise, but you can really help each other. Um, so you probably know some of the, who do you think? Can I, can I turn this on? Who do you think yeah. are some of the editors that you work with or fly fishing <sighs> editors? These Man, days? I, yeah. I think we've said some of them. I always think of, um, I guess I think magazines come to mind first for me. And, you know, I mean, like you said, the Drake, um, that's always the one on top, you know, you know, just, I don't know. I mean, the way that, that whole thing is so unique. It's interesting because writing and fly fishing and just trying to make a business in fly fishing is, is not easy because it's such a small niche. So right. you look at the ones that are successful and the Drake has, has been one, you know, I mean, John Shuey, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, he's probably another one that comes to my mind just cause he's kind of local. Yes. Um, but it seems like it's a struggle to me when I look at, especially the magazines, cause we're seeing magazines go out of business, newspapers go out of business, um, you know, good magazines that are, you know, that are going away. And I, there's a few that have stuck around, right? You mentioned them, Gray's, Anglers, right. um, you know, uh, the Drake, the Fly Fisher. I mean, so why all these other ones are going out, why do they stick around? I mean, is it just, is it, is it the editor? Is it their style? Like what's to keep like for FTJ, what's to keep those, you guys from, from going away? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a tough question because, um, beginning in the 1990s, media really changed. And of course it's all about the internet, uh, and digital publishing and the way people get information. And so they just are more likely to look something up online than pick up a magazine. And so I think, um, those magazines that survive are those that um, a couple things have to happen. They have to look good and adapt. And, and, you know, there's a whole, there's a different aesthetic, you know, you, you can pick up a magazine from the seventies or from the 1950s and it has a feel and we thought, Oh, that looks cool. It's retro, but it feels like a magazine from the fifties, you know? And so you can be retro, but you can't be look, you know, totally outdated. Um, and, and so magazines like fly fish journal and the drake are beautiful and they they have a modern fresh feel photography digital photography has right exploded and having you have to open that up and just say wow like you know these are gorgeous photos um i'm blown away by how beautiful this is that's really important that effect of a magazine because it's competitive now and then and then you know and not duplicating stuff that's online that's why i do think the how to uh you know uh, articles are going to fade away. Mm. Things do change. I mean, newspapers, you're right. Um, people don't read print newspapers very much anymore. I work with the Statesman Journal uh, here in, in Salem from time to time. I, I contribute to them. I know their sports, their fishing writer very well. And, you know, they struggle, um, but they have an online edition and I subscribe to it because I think that's good because I, I like having a newspaper in my state. Um, but a lot of people, they just, you know, they get the free, the three uh, or 12 free visits and they don't subscribe and, um, but they're surviving. Um, and I think that's what happens. You have to adapt, 
or you won't survive. And so we're seeing far fewer, but I think the magazines, the fly fishing magazines that are alive today are good. They're very good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Have you, you know, looking at your writing as things have evolved, and I'm not sure, it sounds like you've, this has been your a lifelong uh, journey in writing, but how, how has your writing changed, evolved since we've been changing the the different, the media has been changing the last 10, 15 years? Yeah, um, you know, they want they want shorter writing. A lot of magazines hmm. want short shorter uh, pieces. For example, I review books. I review books of poetry for Harvard Review. I've been doing it for years. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, it's interesting. The the editors now say, oh, Henry, can you get that review? It's 700 words. I used to write 1,200. <laughs> so, but because it's online, they apparently, like, research shows that, you know, readers don't want to spend as much time. It sounds a little bit, you know, almost humorous, uh, but I think people do have a shorter attention span. They seem to want to, you know, read shorter material. I mean, Field and Stream would be an obvious example. It's like, you know, it's like the USA Today or something of magazines. You know, I remember that as a kid. That was a, my favorite magazine, gorgeous magazine, nice articles. Uh, talking to Ted Leeson about that. He was like, God, you know, they just they just want tiny little bits now, you know, and it's all flash. Is it now? Is that magazine kind of, I mean, do you read it? Is it good to read still? Or I don't read it. You know, I found it like a doctor's office or something. I'll pick it up. Yeah, that's what I see with the, well, I mean, this isn't everybody, but there there's some uh, websites you go to that you just go on. And I mean, literally you can't, um, it's hard to read. I mean, one of them, I, mean, I guess, and they may have changed this, but like fly fishermen, right? I mean, they're a big, they've been around forever. Uh, they've right. got the magazine stuff like that, but it seems like when I go on there, it seems like their, their, um, their website's flashing so much on advertisements right. and all this stuff. I can't even mm -hmm. read it. I mean, I literally, every time I go there, I think I click away because, so I don't know that that's the struggle. How do you balance? Obviously yeah. you got to make money, but I think that's the people that do it. Well, they're, they've learned how to do the online stuff. Well, so it's not annoying. Right. That, that's a really good point. And there is, there is, you do learn to write for digital media. Um, and, uh, it can still be some good writing and there is still some good writing out there. <clears throat> Fortunately, I don't have to write for a living. I am a teacher. And so I can, I can just say, no, I don't really want to do that and find places that still publish my longer pieces or still give me the space I need to, to stretch out in. Um, and so I've been able to select, but I feel for young writers uh, who want to make it, you know, in, in the commercial marketplace, they will have to adjust and, and look, study the magazines. I mean, study a magazine that you want to publish in. What kind of articles do they have? Uh, how long are they? I mean, it's all about word count, um, you know, and pitch something to that magazine. That's the biggest thing that we see at FTJ. I think every journal experiences people send in work that don't really know the magazine. And so it's not a really appropriate for us or it's not it's not really in line with what we're doing. And you just kind of wasted your time. I mean, I, you have to really read the magazine, look at it or look at the website and say, okay, I have something that seems to fit this. And that's really important when you're submitting. Right. That's a great tip. Yeah. Something that, and maybe even, yeah, that, and then something that uh, not only, um, it maybe makes it as different, right. It is something that they haven't, that it, you know, fits the magazine, exactly. but is also something unique. Right. Cause that will, <laughs> we'll get that too. You know, we'll get a, we'll get an article about, you know, whatever, uh, Allegheny, you know, uh, brook trout. And I'm like, well, we just ran, you know, a long article on that in the last issue. So, uh, so it, it is good. And, and, you know, we all make mistakes. So we all, uh, you know, miss our target. That's fine too. But, uh, 
yeah, just knowing the market a little bit and reading it, it really helped. Well, I want to dig into, uh, before we uh, get out of here in a little bit, um, a little bit on your, you know, some of the stuff we talked about already, some of the books and things like that. But I'm curious on the shows, right? So we're in this COVID and are you teaching right now from, do you pretty much just are at home or are you going into, in, into class? Um, we're all on Zoom. And so we will we will resume face-to-face in the fall. That's our goal. But all okay. this year, we have been teaching uh, remotely. Gotcha, remotely. And on the shows, I'm not sure, do you go to any of the fly fishing shows, any of that stuff, the circuit or any of that stuff? Any of that stuff you know, I, I haven't. Um, I, and I, I think I would. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm not really a big circus guy. <laughs> so, um, but Craig has, has Craig Schumann has invited me. And I think I know Albany nearby has a nice show. And I think post COVID that I, I would go, I'm more involved with the magazine now and that kind of world. And so it'd be kind of fun to meet some of these personalities that I've, we've been publishing or that I've been working with, but I'm not like, even I don't go to writers conferences anymore either. You know, there's big ones where you meet, you can meet a famous writer or hear these readings. I used to when I was younger, but I, I'm not as much into that aspect of uh, whether it's the literary world or the fly fishing world, but I, I'm not opposed to them at all. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it makes sense. I think, you know, you find what you love, you know, what you enjoy doing. And, you know, I mean, I've, I haven't gone to a ton of them either. I think I'll be going to more just as for me, I've interviewed so many people. It'd be fun to make more connections in person. Yeah. Um, and you're, you've got a kind of host personality. I think you'd be great at one of them. I mean, so you have had good experiences going to some of these, the shows. Oh yeah. I love them. I mean, I always talk about, I've asked this question to a few and I could throw this back to you, but, um, you know, as far as the energy, you know, I think there's some people, you got two types of people. You got the people that, you know, you, you talk all day long, you're doing stuff with people. And at the end of the day, you're just burnt, you're spent, you're, you know, you're done. Or you got the people like me that I've learned that I'm the person that I could do this all day long. I could literally do these podcasts. I could do 12 of them today. And at the end of the day, I would still be just as energized. Fascinating. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? And so I, I don't know, I think we're doing What's Where do you land more on? Which line do you on? Well, obviously, it's great, and you you have a real skill. You could be a teacher. <laughs> you are. A oh, teacher. really? Is that what it takes to be a teacher? <laughs> yes, because you have to give. You know, it's an emotional you know experience, and you have to kind of give of yourself a bit. Um, maybe there's more of the giving than the receiving, because when you're a host, you kind of ask questions. You can maybe um, sit back a bit, but yeah, it. I find it energizing. I find teaching energizing, but also exhausting. If I have to, you know, keep the game going for two hours, you know, in a quiet class when you have to ask a lot of questions, which I like to do but when you kind of have to really, you know, move them along. Right. When you got classes that are, when you got classes that are sitting there and they're literally, you're asking questions and no, and people aren't <laughs> responding. Sometimes like a 100 level class, they're not majors. They're just taking it because they need that literature requirement. Man, how do you, how do you get, how do you get that? You know, I mean, it seems to me, I remember, right. Cause I remember in college and I, I actually struggled a little bit, you know what I mean? I found my, my groove after college I found, but I mean, cause I, I was that, I was that quiet kid. You know what I mean? How, how do you, how do you connect with that quiet kid or how does that work? I really try. And, you know, it's a part of my job that I love. I don't always su- succeed at, but I really try to kind of, you know, be there, be very present stand up, um, you know, speak, anim- be animated, tell jokes, tell stories, read the passage, 
and make it interesting. I mean, that's my job is to make, let's say it's a 100 level class, a literature class. We're doing a short story. Um, you know, we're doing Hemingway's, right? Big two-hearted river. There we go. It's a fishing story. And I tell them some cool things about Hemingway. I tell them about World War One and emotional trauma and healing through fishing. And I can see sometimes a little, a little flicker there. The light's going on. And that's just my job. And I really, I try to reach them, but it's work. Sometimes it's work and you do feel exhausted after the class, not in a bad way. It's like after a good workout, like a good run, but I definitely feel like, whoa, you know, I'm, that took some energy, but it's very rewarding. I actually enjoy that as much. Well, I enjoy it differently, but as much as even teaching an advanced class where they're really, you know, doing it, they're, they're asking great questions and carrying the class. So. And probably some of those classes you have, uh, you know, people getting up to read, you know, pa passages and things like that. Is that, do you find that's a good engaging way to get people involved or how does that look? Yes. When people like to read, you know, it can make people very anxious if they don't like to read aloud, if they're not confident in their reading skills and everyone makes mistakes reading. I do too. I tell them that I said, I stumble over words or misread something. It's Okay. But I say, would anyone like to read? And sometimes you'll have, you know, you have your go-to uh, students who love to read and read well. And I, I do like when they read aloud. And I, I, I may be a little old-fashioned that way. I think it's good to read aloud. I read my own work aloud because I can hear mistakes and, and um, I can make edits in some ways that I, I can't do um, internally in my brain. It's interesting how that happens. But I think it's good to hear, to hear work. Um, to hear work read aloud is, is wonderful. And so I try to encourage that, but I don't want to, you know, freak them out if they don't want to go there. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. That, that That's, yeah, I, I love, you know, this is interesting for me because like I said, it was a big struggle for me. And um, I'm not sure if I even had a, maybe some sort of a learning disability or something, but I, I, I was, you know, I struggle with the reading, you know, that was definitely my worst nightmare was getting in front of a class and reading. And the crazy thing is, is that after college, you know, it eventually came to me and, and now, you know, I mean, you know, it's just like, I enjoy all, all of that. Right. It's, it's, so it clicked for me, but I mean, obviously some people it clicks earlier. My daughter, she's, she's uh, eight years old and she's a better, <laughs> she's probably a better reader than me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's clicked for her way early. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're just all different. And I, I like what you said there. I mean, there's no reason to put extra pressure on somebody if they're not interested. It's just, you hate to lose the connection to a person that maybe, you know, if you don't make that connection, maybe you lose them as right. opposed to, right. They become, you know, who knows, right. Maybe they become a fly fisher and, and right. they, and they do great things and yeah. conservation and everything. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of pressure is good. I think a little bit of pressure is good in life. I mean, we are in an age now where we're kind of, you know, there's this kind of accusation that we're coddling, you know, young people and students more than ever. And I, I'm okay with a little bit of pressure as long as, you know, it doesn't upset them, but you're right. We all develop differently. I was a very mediocre high school student. I mean, no one would have said, Oh, that Henry Hughes, you know, he's going to go. I mean, I just was like fishing and daydreaming and like smoking pot and having a great time <laughs> playing football. I loved high school. It was not, a, it was a great experience, but I was a, not a good student. You, you were an, were you more an athlete than an academic? I was, I loved sports. I loved fishing and just, yeah, screwing around. And uh, it wasn't until college where I actually got serious about, you know, writing and reading and so on. So, we, yeah, we all definitely hit it at different times. It's interesting. What, what, uh, what in college triggered you to, to, 
to take take it on. I had a really good teacher, a really just a, a professor. I'm still friends with him, Joseph Ditta, and he just there was a kind of sincerity and an, an intensity that just like wow, I really like this. And I went to a, this is a, so I went to a very small college. I went on a football scholarship, and um, in South Dakota, and oh, wow. I did. I basically got my ass kicked in football. Yeah, which which is not South Dakota is. I look at our numbers as far as listeners to the podcast. That's not a hot spot for fly fishing. <laughs> I got a you know this little scholarship, and here I am at this little school, and I'm playing football, and I'm trying to, and I was like, you know what, Henry, you're not going to be a football player. No, you're, you better be a student. And I, I did kind of fall in love. I was a biology and English major, and I loved uh, learning about nature and I, I really did i really got into my studies I, I enjoyed suddenly like reading and writing more i mean always read but not not like this and then i worked on our local newspaper and i you know i had a little show with a friend we did like a little radio show so um and i did fish i fished the missouri river now that there are big brown trout in the missouri um and of course the famous fish of of south dakota walleye pike yeah, oh, yeah. Um, not really fly fish targets, but we did, we could catch them. Um, but we caught great, some big brown trout near Pier, which is the capital of South Dakota. So that was pretty cool. Oh, okay. So there's a little bit of fish in there. Yeah, we have, no, I know, like I said, there's, it's not a hot spot, but we definitely have some listeners out in, in that area. And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, Indiana, I went to graduate school at Purdue on the Wabash river. Oh yeah. And fished a lot. Um, and that's where I met Willard Greenwood, who is one of our contributors at FTJ. Willard is a great fly fisherman and writer. And he, I always fly fished a bit, but he was like, no, we got to do this. We would go to these dams and stuff and catch smallmouth bass and uh, mm -hmm. wipers, like hybrid uh, white striped bass. And, um, yeah. and we fished for a lot of smallmouth there on the Tippecanoe River and tributaries to the, to the Wabash. And then I did a lot of bait. I, I mean, I like bait and gear too. We'd catch giant catfish. We caught like a 40 pound catfish once Jeez. out of the Wabash. Nice. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh, man. Well, I think, uh, you know, I want to just touch before we get you know, get out of here. Um, we mentioned Craig a few times and Craig's a great guy. I'm just curious. I'm not sure if we've touched on this, but how did you connect with Craig for the first time? How did that come to be? Yeah, Craig heard about my book, Backseat with Fish. I think the publisher sent copies to the major magazines. And Craig contacted me and asked if I if he could print, which is typical. You have a new book come out, they do a, a reprint. He wanted to use a section where I describe, I think that was a fly fishing section on the Connecticut River on Long Island where I grew up. It's a beautiful old um, fishing like preserve that they've restored. So he liked the piece and wanted to use it. And he said, well, if you want to contribute some more things. And so I, I just, we just kind of connected and I really like Craig. He's, you know, he's very, as you say, sincere and funny and knowledgeable. And, um, we just clicked. And so I started, I, I, you know, contributed a few pieces for them, uh, and then started helping with editing. Again, I do more of the literary, like the, the essay and the poems, um, and some of the travel pieces, but I did a one of my, you know, I did an interview with Tom McGuane a few years ago that we published. That was a lot of fun. Um, and so things like that, you know, even getting some students. Uh, I've had, um, I've mentored some students who have contributed articles to the magazine, which has been very satisfying. Oh wow! 
How, how was the, um, talk about the interview with Tom McGuane, because that's again, going back to Girock, like we talked at the start, he, when I interviewed him, he talked about how, yeah, because obviously as an author, you do some interviews that, but he said he wasn't a great interview and there's the Terry Grosses of the world and the people that know how to, <laughs> to get, you know what I mean? Uh, how, how was that for you? How, how'd that go? Oh, McGuane is, is an absolute gentleman. He's wonderful. Um, my wife and I were camping in Boulder Creek in Montana and, you know, we were like, we weren't even showered. We kind of like, you know, fixed our hair as best we could. And we drove up to his ranch and he came down to the gate to meet us and gave us a big hug. It's about, this is about two years ago. And um, yeah, we just sat and Lori, you know, came out and his wife uh, and brought us iced teas and we just talked all these dogs. He's got a lot of he's got like six dogs are all like breathing oh, wow. on us and, you know, <laughs> their tongues are dripping on my microphone and we had a, a good laugh. No, he's, he's really, uh, warm, funny, of course, tremendous experiences. Uh, we talked about, you know, all the, all the wonderful people in his world too, you know, fishing with Jim Harrison, you know, and of course, uh, Schwinard and, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Valden, uh, you know, some of the, the characters from the fat boys, the old Key West crowd and, and so he's lived, as you know, some of the greatest fly fishing history of the 20th century. And, um, and then he's just, you know, he's sensitive he, to also to culture. And, and he's, um, you know, he lives in a very conservative area and, and he's kind of a liberal. And, you know, and so he's, but he makes peace. You know, he's also, they respect him. You know, he can ride a horse and shoot a gun. And so I'm kind of like that, you know, I mean, I, I kind of like, I, I like the outdoors and I like, you know, shooting and fishing and, um, but I don't like some of the politics connected associated with that. So, I mean, McGuane can just talk frankly and, 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 and warmly and hopefully about a kind of America where that, that sporting life integrates nicely with a kind of, you know, sensitivity too to where we should be. He's a good conservationist, loves his fish. And they're like his pets, you know, he fishes right there on his Creek and where, where, where's he at? What state is he in? Yeah, it's Montana. It's a oh, yeah. sweet grass County. It's on the, I can't reveal his, <laughs> just, yeah, no, sure, it's, sure. It's a big, he lives right on a nice Creek and, um, you know, he took us to his writing studio and so gracious to my wife too. And, you know, and what, what's his, what's his writing studio? Like? Oh, beautiful. Like kind of log cabin. Oh, wow. Fly rod right over the threshold. He can just grab it and head down to the Creek. He's but, right there. Uh, yeah, he's got a nice right fly there. tying desk. What what was this? This was for is this uh, out somewhere? Or did were you doing this for another piece? This was work? for a fly fishing and tying journal. Oh oh, and is there a there's a this interview is in the journal? Yeah, it's in the journal. Yeah. Okay. How do you find? Is there a way to find like this one or past? Um, you know, like online. So for somebody that maybe missed the magazine or doesn't have a subscription, how could they find that and read it? That's one of our weaknesses. We do not have uh, a a nice uh, online. Once it's, once it's out, it's gone for now. Yeah. A few articles are posted and we're trying to, um, urge, um, you know, Tony Amato to do more of that. Um, because you're right. That's like, if you look at a great magazine, <clears throat> for example, tail, a wonderful saltwater yeah, fly tail. fishing magazine, every issue is available online. Like the whole issue is exactly. beautiful. It looks great. Well, and it makes sense because for both, right. Yeah. It makes sense for that, for the, um, I mean, I feel like for me, you know, reading it is one thing and having the magazine physical copy is people love too. So I think you can have both. I think that's probably what Tail's finding is that why not put it out there? It's content marketing and people can read it and they can read old episodes, right? Exactly. I mean, that it was a question for them. My George Roberts, 
who's their acquisitions editor is a good friend of mine. And they, they did, you know, go over that, like, are we giving away our product for free? Well, you know, not really. And, you know, um, it's, it's there. Maybe it's a little bit later than the print issue. Or you could do what Gray's does. The selected pieces are available online, but not the whole thing. Um, and where FTJ is kind of moving to that, but you're right. I mean, all the magazines are archived. For example, many libraries have every issue, and there's a potential for going back and digitalizing those. That's work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah, should do right. it. You know, when you've got your files at hand. Um, but you're yeah. right. That archiving is a big is a big problem. I'd like to see more access. I'm a big proponent uh, for access to to material, digital material. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and access being like free access, free access. Yes. I believe yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I do too. I think that's the podcasting, you know, is the beauty. There's ways to make, you know, to make money there. But I, I think the podcasting is cool because it's just, it's all free. I mean, we actually are right in the middle now of going to, there's a lot of these paid services going out there where, where people are making premium content and trying to, you know, putting up paywalls, but you know, I, I think some of that is good, but I think really the majority of just having it free out there is the best way because I think people will pay you back once they get to know you and learn your stuff. I think so too. And I appreciate that you're doing that. That's really great, Dave. Yeah. Um, well, before we get out, just talk about your, I mean, we mentioned one book. I didn't know, I know you've written a lot with the magazines, but are there other books you want to highlight here before we get out of here? Well, I have Backseat with Fish, which is coming out in paperback next month. And then I did two anthologies that may interest readers. Uh, they're, they're beautifully printed through the Knopf Random House uh, publisher. And that is um, The Art of Angling, Poems About Fishing, and Fishing Stories. So I'm the editor. I compiled them, but I wrote introductions. And they're, mm -hmm. they're really uh, lovely, lovely books. I'm also a poet, and I've published four books of poetry. Um, and so those are available, too, through Amazon. My last book was called Bunch of Animals. And there's always a few mm -hmm. fishing poems sprinkled sprinkled in there but uh yeah i'm kind of working writing for magazines now mostly and doing book reviews and other projects but probably in the next year or so i should start putting together a book another book um, i've been writing a lot of short fiction as well dave and i enjoy writing short mm -hmm. stories in fact i have a story out in the current issue of gray's called boron uh and th those old those wonderful boron rods are featured in the story. But so that's another thing I'm really enjoying is writing short stories. And I've, I've had one in FTJ and Harvard review. And so hopefully uh, maybe you'll see more of that. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, I'll put, yeah, like I said, put links, to all that in the show notes and uh, be one random one here before we get out, I've been doing a little bit of a, a music thing. This has been ongoing. I've been enjoying it because it's, I've been asking, okay, what's your favorite music, you know, band or type of music. And now I figured out with Spotify, which our podcast is on Spotify, but that you can create some channels. So I'm, I'm doing a, a guest uh, Spotify channel at wetflyswing.com slash music. So you can go on there and actually listen to what uh, it's a compilation of all of our guests, Wonderful. Uh, what they've said. So, so, so for you, do you have anything that comes to mind? Like, do you listen to music? Oh, I love listening to music. Um, and my son is a musician at Portland state. So oh, nice. we talk about music a lot. You know, I'm, I've got some bands that I grateful dead. I'm a big grateful dead fan. Um, Scarlet Begonias, one of my favorite songs. I mean, trying to catch sunflower, a lot of the, a lot of the dead. I love Neil Young, big Neil Young fan, Rolling Stones. Um, so classic rock is probably my thing. Although, you know, I listen to new music too. Um, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, that's 90s. God, I'm dating myself. But, yep. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I like, uh, I like, I guess, you know, 
rock and roll, baby. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'll add, uh, I'll add it to our mix, our, our Spotify mix. I'll add the, <laughs> uh, the Grateful Dead. I don't have the Grateful Dead yet. So it'll be interesting to see how this turns out because I'm just starting it. But once we mix in all of our guests, the music into one compilation, it's going to be pretty inter- interesting. That's a really great idea. Out. Absolutely. See, I love the way you're integrating all the arts. This is the, this is beautiful. That's right. It is art. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Uh, well, it, it comes to me. I just, I, I live off of my guests. You know, I think that idea, I can't remember where it came. One of my guests mentioned that they had the Spotify thing going, and, and I just was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. What's let's, your let's favorite band? Out. What's one of your favorite bands? Well, you said it. I mean, I definitely love The Dead, uh, The Stones, Zeppelin. Zeppelin, uh, probably, yeah. Probably one of those three. I mean, I, I'm more cla- – I, and I also do love the old country, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard. Me too. Willie Nelson. Yeah. Yeah, so it's probably it's probably tied between those two. Between like, if I had to put Zeppelin up with Johnny Cash, that'd be a tough one for yeah, me. Yeah, for me too. I, I love storytelling, you know, and they, they both are, and uh, just about the guitar, Zeppelin's guitar, man. Oh my god. Yeah, the Zeppelin's good. Well, and the cool thing is, is yeah, it is stories, and but it's also there's a connection to the uh, both that that Johnny Cash and Zeppelin to like the blues. Yeah, right. There's a good blues connection. Absolutely. So, Beautiful. Um, all right, Henry. Well, hey, in the next, uh, say, six months or so, anything new you want to give a shout out? Any other books or magazine articles you have coming out? Well, just look for me in Angler's Journal. And as I said, I've got a story coming out in Gray's. And um, I really appreciate what you're doing, Dave Stewart. It's a great podcast. And let's just keep fly fishing and keep the planet as healthy as we can. And uh, we'll see you around the next bend of the river. All right. Sounds good. I'll, I'll try to keep it going my best. And uh, we'll send people out to uh, HughesPoetry.com as well. Thank you. All right. See see you, Henry. Thanks very much. Take care. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, and everything else we covered today, just head over to wetflyswing.com slash 231. That's 231. If you've been enjoying the show uh, in the past or today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash review or just click the uh, review button, a rating and review button in your app of choice, and leave us a quick review. This helps... This helps uh, get the word out there and lets people know that uh, you're enjoying the show and it's just real helpful. I read every every one of the reviews, so I always love uh, checking those out. Uh, thanks in advance if you've had a chance to do that. Tune in next Tuesday morning when Ed Javorowski is here to share his, uh, his new book on flight casting. This is a killer book and he takes us through the step-by-step to improving your casting this season. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon. Uh, Thanks again for stopping by today and listening to the show all the way till the end here. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you. So uh, please stay in touch and uh, let's talk soon. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.